Okay, today I'm in Leafy Surrey with Stephen Harris. Stephen, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us today. Um, right, basically, what is it you do? What is it you do for a living? Well, um, these days, Simon, I, I work for a Betting Expert, which is a company based in uh, Copenhagen, um, and I write about racing, do racing tips every day. We've got a YouTube channel that's very popular. Um, we do a weekly show for IrishRacing.com. Uh, discussing the week's racing, looking back at the previous week's racing. Um, and if anyone who's watching this hasn't got a betting expert account, they really must open one because basically it's open to uh, people tipping up sport or racing or anything they choose to. And there's exceptionally good uh, prize money every single month if you're a successful tipster. So anyone who's interested in a cheap way of getting into betting and gambling without really risking their own money, a uh, betting expert is well worth looking at. That's well, the advert over for the year. And well worth looking at because yeah. you, you put all your figures are up there. Yeah. And your figures are uh, returning 10% on investment, which is pretty, pretty good. Well, I mean, if you got the accounts to get on, um, yeah, I would say it's well worth hopefully following me. We've got tips up there for the last 11 years or 12 years, I think it is now. Uh, and every year has been profitable. You can look back at all the results. Um, they're up there a day before, which is quite helpful for punters. And if you're a sort of small staking recreational punter um, who can get on at sort of top of the market, then it's a really good site to look at. Okay, and just, just so people don't think this is an advert for, uh, for the website, you, you, you personally bet on horses and dogs, and you have yeah. done successfully for quite some time. Um, are you selective in both codes? Um, well, I've, I've been a punter probably since I was 18, uh, probably a bit before then, to be honest. Um, National hunt racing is my main thing, um, and I do um, Swindon and Hove Greyhounds, which I watch the videos for, uh, which is a much simpler process now than it used to be. So, yeah, that's my, um, I mean, my main income, I am a, a you know, journalist or a blogger, whatever you want to call it, uh, and I split my time between doing that and punting, basically. And so you constant. What do you con do? You concentrate on certain grades with the dogs. You say you watch the videos, which we've met a lot of, sort of dog punters that yeah. do that religiously. Um, is do you narrow it down a bit more than that, rather than just a track you're betting at? Well, I I, I look at Swindon and Hove specifically, and I play exclusively on uh, Betfair. Basically, um, probably quite similar. I know you've had Rich uh, Check Bet uh, on and Jerry Croxford and all these. Uh, I wouldn't be in the same grade. They're A1 performers, I'm probably an A7 performer, but um, yeah, we, I chip away there and I don't miss a race and I make notes and I do all the, you know, but basically the key with it all, we'll come on to this later, I'm sure um, everyone already knows, uh, price things up to 100% and look for value. Uh, these days, I think it's true of National Hunt Racing especially, the value is probably not at the front of the market, there's very little juice at a time you can get on, things are priced accordingly, everyone focuses in the front of the market. And that's true in a way of greyhounds that um, everyone wants to back the same video dogs. It's got very compressed. So, you know, everyone's got a super nap. They make it six to four. These days on Betfair, perhaps in the old days, it might've been five to two the field, three to one the field. Now it'll be four to five, four to six by the time it's finished. And the, the juice has got squeezed out. Of so um, in general, I would say, you're better off looking away from the obvious at the front of the market. Um, but it's, it's, I haven't got hard and fast rules. You've got to constantly evolve. I mean, sometimes you find yourself, you know, things you thought were quite good two months ago are no longer any good. I mean, I mean to give you an example, this is very boring detail. 
and pr probably meaningless to people really, but um, Betfair Greyhound's got a place market, um, which is basically, I think, seeded robotically, or certainly people paying off algorithms um, in relation to the win market. Um, and say for, with Greyhounds, front runners, say there's three front runners in a race, well, they might be sort of seven to two, three to one to win the race, and that might be their correct price. But the algorithm generated of people who are using Betfair makes them sort of 2.5, 2.4 a place. Well, that's not really the, their correct price. That's far too short, basically. If you think there's three front runners in a race, um, the value is to oppose them a place, for example. So that's one example, not a particularly good one that I've chosen, but you've got to look for, constantly look for angles and edges, find things that are different away from the obvious. So it, what I'm saying, Simon, is it's no good, you know, 20 years ago, you'd find something, you'd do the form, I want to have my bollocks on it, you know, it's going to be evens. You can't do that anymore. There's far, it'll already be four to seven, apart from anything else, if you're right. So there's far cleverer people playing on Betfair, um, particularly with jump racing, flat racing, um, you have got to try and be an inventive and keep reinventing yourself away from the obvious, I think. Okay, and the horses, you say you, uh, you concentrate on the National Hunt, but do you, you do whittle it down a bit more than that? Um, I, I, the, I do watch flat racing and I talk about flat racing and I tip horses for betting expert uh, flat racing and I will play during the flat season, but I wouldn't say I was a wonderful judge of the form. I think to be truthful with flat racing, there's far, far too much of it. It's virtually impossible, particularly. I think if you're probably 20 and you dedicate your whole life to watching flat racing and you've got the time to only do that, you can probably follow the form successfully. There's lots of fantastic judges out there, the Dixons on racing TV, people who know the form book inside out. Um, I couldn't deal with the volume of flat racing these days. Jump racing is manageable. Um, there is evening racing in the summer a bit, but not that much these days. So you're talking about one, two, three meetings on a Saturday jump racing, I think it's fine to deal with it. I spend a lot of my time watching replays, making notes, pricing things up again, um, looking for edges, you know, looking for things that uh, perhaps the market's missed. Okay, now you said that you're a sort of, you class yourself as A7, which is probably a bit self-depreciative there, but <laughs> if you just concentrated on the dogs, or you just concentrated on the horses, can you up yourself a few grades? Why do you spread yourself so thinly? Well, I, I, I don't think I do spread myself thinly. I, I mean, I've, I try to specialise in things. I mean, I get up very early in the morning. I do my betting expert stuff for a few hours. I watch yesterday's racing, make notes on it. I price up if there's a dog card. There's usually only one dog card I'm interested in a day, like Swindon or Hove will be on. I'll price that up. Um, so I don't think I spread myself that thinly. I mean, I'm not looking to play in 37 races in an afternoon. Um, so if there's six races at Weatherby this afternoon, for example, I might have had two bets. Um, you know, I'm not looking to... And I'm not, I'm not an action junkie. I don't chase... Um, I'm, I'm a much less volatile character now than I was when I was in my 20s, um, when I was a bookmaker and stuff. Um, so it's all a bit more controlled uh, and in sort of first or second gear rather than getting too heavily involved, you know. And without, without this sounding like a stupid question, because obviously it's not actually, but is the basic winner finding process the same for greyhounds and horses? Um, my thoughts mainly about greyhound racing is what's going to happen as the traps open and in the first 10 yards. So for, to give you an example, you know, by watching dogs regularly, making notes, all the rest of it, if something is inclined to dive to the rails um, and it's now in trap three, um, I'd be very interested in being against the dog in two and one. I mean, it's not as simple as that. You, you get a feel for it. Um, 
There are certain golden sort of rules with grey. You want to be with younger dogs, pups who are less exposed. Um, I, I play a lot of dogs who are well drawn. I think now with Betfair, as I said before, there's a lot of money for the fast dogs, the ones who've shown something on the video that the whole world can now see. There's a very good um, online way of watching all the videos as there is for horse racing now. Um, so not much gets missed. And the really obvious ones are definitely underpriced now. Um, so in those sorts of races, if I think something's, you know, one thing I will say something that might be helpful to people is that if you price things up, say a Greyhound race or a 10 runner jumps race, if you do price it up properly to 100%, it's very hard, particularly with Greyhound racing, to make things genuinely short because you've got to get to 100. So things end up being sort of 25, 33, 50. They're probably not quite that big. Whereas on Betfair now, because the front of the market, the whole world declares for one dog at a short price, the value tends to be elsewhere. I think um, Check Bet Rich touched on this when he was talking about betting on greyhounds, that um, he comes in late and hoovers up the obvious value, things that are he doesn't particularly fancy, but they're 16 when they probably should be eight or seven. That's where the, the margin can, over time, of course you can have 10 losing races in a row backing outsiders, you know, but over time, that's how you grind out a profit, which, which that's what it's about at the end of the day. Okay, now you've won over a substantial period of time. Um, apart from everyone on Twitter, most people lose backing horses, even if they do take it seriously. So what sets you aside from the majority of punters who lose? Well, um, I, would, I wouldn't claim to be winning fortunes. I'm happy if I can win two or three grand a month. I'm delighted, because I say I've got one other job as well. So I, I think a lot of punters boom and pretend to be a lot more successful than they are. And I've done, been a punter for sort of 30 years and there's been, tr there's been lots of fun times, nice holidays, all the rest of it. But you're better off talking about the bad times when you've struggled and run out of money and backed a lot of losers, had bad months, you know. Um, it's very difficult. It's, it's extremely competitive. I think there probably was a golden age when I was in my sort of tw late 20s, early 30s, when you could have accounts with all the firms. Nobody was aware of each way betting. Uh, early prices became a new thing. There was no Betfair dictating everything. I mean, but like everyone else, I mean, I, 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 one thing I don't really like particularly, I don't like punters booming things when they back to winner. I don't think that's, I think you're much better off getting it quietly. I mean, that, that dates, but I used to come back from the dogs four nights a week and I've been married for 22 years. And you'd always say to the missus, um, one small, lost small. Now, you might have done your absolute bollocks. There's no good coming in saying, I've just done seven grand, is there? You know, you might have, he's better off saying he lost 300 quid, we can still feed the cat, you know. Um, so you're better off being sort of uh, even-tempered, not getting too excited, um, and treat it as a business that you're trying to grind out a profit week after week, month after month. Um, and I, I do agree with Icy on Twitter, um, and uh, I have been reluctant to do this sort of thing before, as you know, um, because you do, you do, it does look sort of boastful. And a lot of punters are, they can't wait to tell you they've had back to winner or they've got eight to one when it's now 11 to two. And that doesn't matter. I don't care what, what anyone else thinks. You know, at the end of the day, it's how you get on yourself, how you can look after your family and, and you know, enjoy your life really that the balance is very important it's you know whether someone's got 20 million or 200 quid it doesn't really change them as a person does it
Yeah, like I saw I saw the tweet you mean with IC about the dick swinging. Yeah, but I mean, but these videos are to help other people yeah. become more successful. Right, and if the person comes across as being boastful, they're giving us their time for nothing. Yeah, so you know. Well, really, we should be sitting. IC should come I, on. I picked you up from the station, Simon, in my car that's twenty years old. It's done about one hundred and seventy thousand miles, and uh, we should be doing this in my office upstairs, which is a leaky attic. There's a hole in the roof and the, the window's falling off its hinge. And there's probably, because my wife won't go up there at all, she refuses to go anywhere near it, quite rightly. Um, it's uh, covered in dust, and you know, that would be a, this is a better advert than sitting in the front room. But um, the, the, the reality, you know, the reality of it is uh, being a punter can be quite a sort of lone, you've got to be quite strong minded uh, and, and like your own company because you're spending a lot of time on your own. Doing, I mean, when I was in my 20s, I mean, there's a picture of me at university um, a long time ago, 30 years ago probably, um, sitting on my desk and I had a pile of sort of red accounting books that people used to write. I used to write, keep Greyhound form cards in them. You know, there's no computers then, obviously, so it was 30 years ago. And I used to keep records of how Greyhounds run and I used to have sort of all these form cards with my own comments on and what price they were. And all. I, I spent a lot of time uh, and, and with the video, when videos came around, there used to be uh, VHS videos. I'd sit on the chair in front of the television to make myself watch them rewind, play again, rewind, play again. You know, um, you've got to work very hard and you've got to become an expert in one certain area uh, to make it pay, really. And do you, because you study both the grounds and horses, do you give yourself the luxury of leaving one out for a bit if it's going, if you're having a particularly lean spell? Well, is that um, something that helps? With, with the jump season during the summer months, um, it, which is a good thing, it's getting there's much less racing in the summer, so we'll have a holiday in the summer when it's quieter. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't find it that hard to manage. As I say, Swindon and Hove are on, probably they race three or four times a week. Um, I'll always have those meetings priced up and ready to go. Um, the jump season, um, there's never that much racing. You can always watch the replays. I spend all morning watching the replays from yesterday, making notes, looking at the next day. So I think you can manage to control it if you hone in on certain areas. All right, Steve, we've already ascertained that you're not a professional gambler in the, the pure sense of the word, but would you say that you're a professional and in inverted commas gambler who also does media work or the other way around? Yeah, I think I am a punter, really. I mean, I've had betting expert for 11 or 12 years now. And personally, I'd, I, some punters, I have got immense admiration for people who only punt, who've got no other source of income. Because if I have a really bad month or two, at least I know that um, betting expert will pay the gas bill and the mortgage without any stress or worry. Um, so I find that make, I can concentrate better on the punting without worrying about whether the bills have been paid that month. Um, so I don't think I'm, I would describe myself as a punter. If people ask, I say I'm a punter, but it's more respectful to say to your friends, well, I, I'm a sort of blogger, a journalist, a YouTuber, whatever you want to call it. it it's nice. And also it's a, you pay a bit of income tax. It's a nice way um, of feeling sort of a more normal person. As you know, Simon, if you describe yourself as a punter, um, it's sort of your persona non grata, aren't you? It's not really what you say at dinner parties and stuff. You're, you're better off saying you're you know, a PR man or a marketing person or or something like that. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love doing it. I mean, with um, Betting Expert, I've met a lot of people I never would have met. They've got offices in Copenhagen. I've worked with Shane Anderson, obviously, um, Global Gallup on Twitter, um, Jackie Brocker, fantastic people. I've met lots of people. If I, if I was 20, I'd go and live in, you know, we'd, we'd go and live in Copenhagen because it's absolutely wonderful place and a wonderful company. So 
I think coming back to something you said earlier on, um, for your own sanity, it's good to stay sociable, chatting to new people, meet new people. I mean, I run a football team. Um, I try and exercise, try and go, try and stay so away from betting because otherwise you can get completely wrapped up in it. I mean, one thing I do find, um, and again, it's I, I'm full of admiration for people who are totally dedicated to punter because if you're sort of single and you haven't got family life and all the rest of it, there's never a cutoff point, is there? The day never ends. I mean, I can imagine you'd be sort of onto the sort of American football at three in the morning. You know, if you're into that sort of punting is all you've got. If there isn't a cutoff point, then it's really, really hard to sort of keep a sense of sanity. You talk about a sense of sanity. So how many hours would you put into it a day? Well, I get up really early. Um, like um, your hero, Margaret Thatcher, Simon, um, I, I get up at sort of 5.30 every morning uh, and I really try, I, I find I work better than I get up. I'll do two hours doing the form. I'll do my betting expert stuff, all the YouTube stuff, price up the racing, price up if Swindon or Hove's on. Uh, and then I've got the afternoon free to bet, basically, because I, I think you need to, if you, I'm, I'm a complete exchange punter these days, bar, you know, one or two things that I can, uh, places that I can get on if I really want to. Um, so I find it easier to be concentrating solely on betting on the exchange um, with nothing else in the way sort of thing in the afternoons. Okay, then we mentioned earlier that you're, it's very impressive, 10% on your two tips a day for a betting expert. I mean, how many bets a day would you have for your own personal punting? Well, with the greyhounds to be slightly different, with the horses, um, I'll be betting sort of 90% jump racing and I'll maybe play two or three races a day. But I, might, I do lay things as well. Um, I, I can't quite get rid of the sort of bookmaker in me that when I think things have shortened up far too much, that I will lay them. Um, but with the dogs, it's slightly different. How many bets a day? I, with Hove and Swindon, I've got my prices to 100%, and there'll always be map discrepancies between what I think things should be and what the market says. The dog racing markets are much less settled and much less correct than horse racing markets. As you know, in the last few minutes of horse racing markets, the prices are near as damn it right. Now, I know that people say, well, it's far too short, that's far too big, perhaps, but Overall, they arrive at the right conclusion. The only people left playing on Betfair are people who have probably stood the test of time. There's very little mug money on there. It's extremely accurate. I mean, I read um, a lot of blogs and a lot of bookmakers you've interviewed and um, on Twitter especially, and they say, oh, we've had another shocking day at um, Hexham. Four favourites of one and two second favourites. Well, that's what's going to happen. It's not favorite because the sporting life went five to two and so they all go up five to two uh, and they you know they may, maybe it was because Lester Piggott was riding was it? it's five to two because all the brains in the world have decided it's got a 29% chance of winning and that is what chance it's got if you've laid three to one you are going to lose now if you've come in and laid seven to four before it drifted out then you'll be fine but most of these sort of on-course bookmakers now they've all laid three to one you know, because they're desperate, got to lay a favourite, got to lay a favourite. And it's not profitable, you know. I mean, there isn't enough money on course now to make, we'll come on to that later. Very hard to make it pay now because the money's moved away onto the exchange. Um, but, um, so, yeah, how many bets will I have? With the Greyhounds, I'll probably play on every single Hove race or every single Swindon race one way or another. I'll look to lay something a place or be against this, back that. Just related purely to prices. I'm really try as I get older not to fancy things, but to get my prices right because that's the key to surviving, really. 
Okay, now you've mentioned that you, you do most of your betting on the exchange. Is that because, like everybody else at Success, we've lost all your accounts, or is it because you get that extra bit of value? Um, mainly, it's hard to get accounts. You, you I mean, um, I know people who still can get on, but it is it has got a lot harder. I just find Betfair's a lot easier. From a discipline point of view, um, you can control your staking completely. You're not sort of giving round orders to people and you're getting it returned in the last minute. You don't know whether you've got on, have they missed the price? I just find the whole thing much more. That being said, um, the recent sort of affordability checks are going to make life extremely difficult. I'm sure a lot of people who watch your interviews and stuff, Simon, have been hit by these affordability things where you're basically getting asked how much do you earn a month and you're getting severely restricted on what you're able to deposit or lose per month in theory. Um, so there's going to be massive changes coming down with Betfair. I mean, I've bet with Betfair since they since day one, um, since they started. Um, and so they know the overall profitability or whatever of the account and what I usually, what size I bet in and all the rest of it. Um, and I've had regular contact with them recently because they want to limit your stakes right down in relation to your actual income, unrelated to how your betting's gone over the last 20 years. So that is a massive I mean, if and when that angle closes, it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for a lot of people who, like, like me, I, I say I've got a job, but punting is probably a, a bigger part of my what I'd hope to be my earnings every year. And if that stops, then you have to have a rethink. It's very difficult. Um, do you... You may not want to say this, but do you have any accounts where you're tolerated as a mark? No, no. I mean, I, I, I really wish I did. I mean, my friend um, Steve Freeth works for Bet365, and Steve, lovely guy, I've known him since we were kids, really, and we worked together in our first job um, at race, uh, SAS. And uh, I've always hoped that Steve, who's been at Bet365, is probably the richest man in Aston Villa where he lives. Uh, it's Birmingham, really. It is... Um, I would hoping he would get me an account at Bet365 and look after me, but I don't think he's quite got the say. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I have had accounts in the past, um, but it's just, you know, I, I don't, I, one of the things I actually don't like is punters moaning about not getting on because we all know that. I re, we all knew that when we were 20, didn't we? The, the bookmakers are not, a bookmaker said to me when I started, when I was a punter at the dogs before I became a bookmaker, we're not here for you, son. And they're not. Yeah, they're there for themselves. And you have got to understand that. I wouldn't... Uh, at the dogs, I bet some hot people, but I don't want to play people who I think are a lot better than me in big size. Why should you? You know, no. I, I, I have no problem. There's no... It's pointless. It's like sailors moaning about the sea, punters moaning about getting on. You can't do anything about it. It's, it was forever thus. Now, you've... Anybody watching this so far, and there's about 25 minutes, it's very easy. You win money back in horses yeah. and dogs. Now, the reality is that I imagine the very best people have bad losing runs. Which would be the worst? Can you remember one that you've experienced that was almost brought you to well, the edge? Well, I mean, go, the, it, when I was a bookmaker and younger in my 20s, um, I didn't have any... I mean, I, I had to go and stand up in court to get your licence. Um, the thing I thought would hold me back is I had no money. I mean, I had a few thousand pounds. Um, I'm not from a wealthy family or anything like that. So I stood up in court. I'd got what money I had was from punting, from betting, you know, and uh, they gave me a license. So I walked on at the dogs my first night, night when I was, I had a partner who was, who was already there. So I started um, with a few thousand pounds, basically. So, but 
you, you could, in those days, it was slightly different. You could take money. But my, my worst sort of time, I think there was a, a spell um, during the, the Reading Masters was the big thing every year. And I think there was a terrible run of favourites winning sort of all the, you know, and you did use this. There's no bet fair. There's no bet fair. So you're playing. I went up first with the prices. They were my prices. If they want to be on at six to four, they can be on. And say I, by this time, a few years on, I had a 20 grand float and I think I was losing sort of 17 grand. And we, we came to the mile. So you're looking, you're thinking we're in trouble here. We've got no, there's nothing, there's no sort of, didn't own a property, rented a property. There's nothing to fall back on. Um, and I think what actually happened um, was that there was an odds on favourite and I bet anti-post on the Masters who I think was called Blue Merlin and he ended up, I think he was seven or four on in the, um, in the final and he got beat. Now had he won, I think it would have been extremely difficult for me to, to carry on because the anti-post book was absolutely horrendous. As it happened, the winner, a dog called Night Troop, it was a re really good dog. Um, was a, was a very good result. So there's, there's numerous points along the way where, you know, your float is extremely low when I was in my 20s. And, um, you know, there's been huge bumps in the road and disasters and, you know, bookmakers have gone bust and you've fallen out. But, you know, all these things that everyone else has been through. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a tough game. Bookmaking is a very tough game, especially on course. It, it's extremely, I, I had nearly probably best part of 20 years at Reading and um, Oxford until they closed. Um, and it, there were lots of times where you're in and out of money. There's times where you're flying as well. I, I think you're better off talking about the times when you're struggling personally. Nobody wants to hear about the nice holiday you had in Thailand. They'd, they'd sooner hear about you sort of, you know, scrambling around the back of Aldi trying to get the value uh, baked beans, wouldn't they? But you've got the added pressure because you also tip your horses up and you get paid to tip horses up to people that read betonexpert.com. So have you ever had a, a, a terrible losing run on there where you've sort of started to doubt your abilities? Well, there, well, there have been losing runs. I mean, we, we, we do a daily betting expert nap, which tends to be shorter price ones. So they're usually all right. They usually bump into a winner there. But the value ones, which are sort of usually double figure prices, generally speaking, you can have runs where you don't tip a winner for a month. And of course, we're on YouTube every day now with the daily video. And the, some of the troll comments are absolutely fantastic. I mean, if you ever made the mistake of reading them, you know, you'd never get out of bed in the morning. But, uh, you know, like, but, uh, you know, I've got a thick skin, really. These, the, there's been plenty of bumps in the road and uh, it, it brushes off me, really. And have you got a strategy for ever bouncing back, like you, uh, taking a break or going for a run? Or well, something no, like I that? think that's well, in the morning because I get up so early. We go for an hour's walk every day. With some lockdown, um, we were talking off camera about this, but lockdown was a sort of wonderful time of freedom, wasn't it? You you had so much time. I wasn't worried about getting back for the eleven oh seven at Swindon when there was no dogs and no racing. But after about two weeks, the novelty wore off, and I suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute. If this goes on for six months, you know, the lights are going to be going out. Um, but no, I think going for a walk every morning is a really, walk for an hour, do 5,000 steps, don't look at your phone. I mean, phones are the world's worst thing. I am the absolute, this is the longest I've gone without looking at my phone for about 10 years. It's, uh, they are the world's worst. I mean, you know, especially for punting and stuff, you know, you're going around someone's house and you're trying to watch the 727 from Hove when they're serving up the melon and ham. I mean, it's, it, they are the absolute, what you've got to find cutoff points, I think, where you, I mean, I get up early and start early. I'll come downstairs at five o'clock. If there's no night racing, I'll just try not to have a bet, not be interested in it, stay disciplined. Okay, there's a lot of, a lot of talk about um, staking and betting banks and keeping records and all that. I mean, do you use a staking plan as such? 
I think I think staking is the hardest part of gambling um, and keeping your discipline is extremely important. I mean, I've always had personally a, a deposit limit a day, which I won't say how much it is, but whether you, it's a tenner or a thousand pounds or 20,000 pounds, whatever it is, you've got to have a, a point where you can't chase and stop yourself from losing too much money. Because I think things can go very badly wrong. And there's not a punter in the world who doesn't, you know, if you back something that's 20 lengths clear, it falls at the last, or you get beat a short head at the dogs, then you get another, beat another short head, and then another short. It's very hard not to feel that sort of heat on the back of your neck. You know, you're sort of hotted up, aren't you? You want to get it back. Right, where's the next race? What's the next? You've got to avoid that at all costs. And I think having a deposit limit, um, ever since Betfair allowed that, I've always had that. So I've always known that I was only up for a certain amount each day. We start again tomorrow. We crack on from there, you know. And that way you, you know what the worst case scenario is. When I was younger, I, you know, I was playing at the dogs far too big looking back um, in the scale of what I had. You know, I thought I was sort of, you know, Jack the Lad and all the rest of it, a, a, a big fish in a small pond. And I remember when Betfair started, I was probably flying along at the dogs, you know, had some good punters playing Terry Dart or playing quite big players, uh, hitters at the dogs. And it was a vibrant market where you could bet your opinion if you went 12 to 1 and you knew the owner, you could lay a 2,400 or 2. You know, there was money at the races, at the, at the Greyhounds. So Betfair came along, I thought, what a game. There's a 12-runner handicap at Catrick. Look, you can lay a 4,000 to 1. How can that be 4 to 1 in a, you know, it'd be 11 to 4 two minutes later. Steve Goff would be on, Peter Jones would be on it. Um, it'd win by three lengths. Oh, I've done four. You know, you... you played on the same scale as you did when you when you were the sort of master at Reading with 125% on the board thinking you're clever you went on to Betfair and thought wait we can do you know how can that be four to one in a big handicap you know how can that be six to one at Ascot Um, and it was a lesson you've got to play into things where you have an understanding of what you're dealing with and why things are a certain price I think a lot of people and I was certainly one of them when Betfair came along, I thought it was a honeypot. I thought this is going to, we're going to be, we're going to be rich, Rodney. You know, it, it really was like that. It was a, you're going to, you can dictate, you can do what you like, you can, but you have to be incredibly disciplined, I think. Okay, now honing your skills, we're going to go back to the beginning because you started your career, if I got this right, as a senior trader, but after doing a degree in politics. Now, how does a degree in politics well, give you the qualifications I, I went, to be a senior trader? I went to, um, Reading University. The reason I went to Reading University was I went to Reading Dog Track. Um, if there was a university at Wimbledon, I'd have gone to Wimbledon. But I went to Reading. I did politics because I've always been very interested in politics. Anyone who suffers my Twitter feed regularly, Simon, will know that I've always been interested in politics. Um, but yeah, I did that. Um, I, was, I used to go, the same as everybody you do on these series, usually it's a parent, isn't it? I went racing with my dad. He used to go to Plumpton, to Fontwell, and he went to Wimbledon Greyhounds. So I was very, very interested in that. I remember going to Cheltenham when I was probably about 13, standing next to, next to Chandler in, in pitch one, watching him, watching Colin Webster, watching Dudley, watching Johnny Lights. What, I was absolutely fascinated by the betting market. The same, we've all, that's how we all got in it. I used to go to Cheltenham and places like that and watch the betting market. I didn't really watch the racing. I was more interested in you know, the tic-tacs and the money flying in, uh, laying the front six in the market in the Gold Cup, getting them all beat and they were all, you know, Different times, fantastic. And uh, I decided I want to be a bookmaker. So um, basically I was, I was a punter at the, the dogs, quite a good punter. If I say, 
I was probably better in my early 20s than I've ever been since, to be honest, because you're completely dedicated. You haven't got to, Bob. You've got nothing to lose. You really want to get going. So totally dedicated to watching these VHS videos of the Greyhounds. Rewind, rewind, rewind. Watch one, watch two, watch three. Watching them for hours and hours and hours. So you, it got to the point where you're like a chess player. You know what you, every piece is capable of doing. You'd look at the races and you'd form a very, very good opinion of what was likely to happen in these races. And even against 135% at Reading Dogs, against some very mean old bookmakers who are then upset by joining their ranks, um, you could have a very good feel for it. Um, so how did I become a senior trader? Well, I went to um, SIS was my first job in the text room uh, on the phones, taking prices, £6,000 a year um, salary, which shows how old I am. And um, that was brilliant fun, met lots of lovely people, still friends with most of them now. Um, some of them have gone on to do very well, like Tony Ennis, Steve Freeth, Richard Russell at the BHA, Stuart Middleton. I'm, mi I'm missing loads of people, but there were loads of clever people there. And um, after that, I left that, um, went to work, work for Sporting Index. Um, day one at Sporting Index, I sat next to Alistair Hunter. David Garbaz was off, probably Arsenal were playing. And uh, on his computer, there was a sticker, I was Merson's bookie, which perhaps something we shouldn't talk about, but it's true. Um, the private phone would ring, Ian Botham would be on, that was private. Again, we probably shouldn't talk about that, it's another story, but I was a kid really, and it was a fantastic place to work. Again, full of geniuses, very, very good punters. The spread betting people, really good punters, and um, I just did the horse racing there and loved it for probably seven or eight years. But I was going to the dogs, I mean, we talked about this before, work-life balance and all the rest of it. When I was like 23, 24, um, we lived in London, renting a flat in London, and 6am um, get into Sporting Index, price up the horse racing, trade that all day, 5.30 cab to Paddington, uh, Paddington to Reading, cab to the dog track, bolt down dinner, price up the card, bet on four dog races, cab to the station, train home, cab back home to Islington. This is now one in the morning. Get the racing post at King's Cross, start again at six o'clock the next day. I was doing that six days a week. I mean, you'd be dead by now. You know, it's absolute madness. Apart from being extremely unhealthy, you know, you're eating rubbish on the way and all the rest of it. But um, no, I mean, great times. And, and I met so many really nice people along the way. Now, you said that you were fairly young, relatively young when you joined the ranks of these miserable old bookmakers. Mm. Um, what did their established bookies there think of this young upstart coming into the room? They absolutely hated me. I mean, I remember one of them having me by the throat. But that was because I was probably very arrogant. And I, I do remember Ken Campbell, who's probably, hopefully, still around Touchwood. Uh, absolutely, I grew to, it was a sort of love-hate relationship. You know, he, he hated me, but by the end, he probably quite, you know, we got on all right. He bet next to me for many years. And um, I think I upset the market when I started because... They used to have a very closed club of old boys. Um, they bet to 130%. There was a lot of punters. Everyone got paid in cash in those days. It was totally different. Reading still is a growing town. It was full of builders. It was thriving. Before you got to having a recession, everyone had plenty of money. Men got paid with pay packets. So, you know, they gave their wife £100 and they had £200 to crack on with. And uh, it was, even when I joined... Although they would say it had gone, you know, bookmakers always say it's gone. It hadn't gone. Relative to now, it was, it was like a gold mine relative to what, what it is now. You, you could take money. I mean, don't get me wrong. Pe 
people think bookmaking was a route to riches. It really wasn't. I know two bookmakers who went bust in very bad ways at, at Reading in the time I was there. Um, one I did a bit of work for on the floor went, went bust uh, one Reading Masters night back in the day and that was a horrendous mess to sort out after that. Um, and one other as well later on uh, did, who's, who I'm still friends with now. But it, book, bookmakers who fail don't get talked about, generally speaking, but it does happen a lot, you know. And one of the reasons for that was you have people like Harry Finley. Yeah, I, I, well, Harry used to own um, a lot of greyhounds and was a very big punter. He, he got a lot bigger l later on, you know, fantastically successful at one time. But I remember, um, as I say, I thought I was chatting the lad, you know, I remember Harry coming in one Reading Moss and he had a dog in trap one. Now, this is going to be icy and all, are going to hate this story because this is a horrible bookmaker bragging story, which I'm pained to tell you. But Harry Finley, he had a dog in trap one um, who was obviously going to be, and he paid a lot of money for it, I'm sure. I can't even remember its name, Alzheimer's is setting in. But there was a local dog in two who was a very fast breaking, tight railer from trap one most weeks. And he was in two and Harry Finley's dog was in one. And I think, I mean, I think I must have taken sort of 15 or 16 grand out of it, evens, and wouldn't take it off because I was cocky and all the rest of it, which is a horrendous way to be. As it happened, obviously, I wouldn't be telling you, it did get beat, obviously. Two went straight into it out of the traps and that was it. But Harry then cracked away and had more bets and, uh, yeah, I mean, he was a, a character. But I also, for 10 years, I bet with, Terry Dartnell bet with me, he's now handed over to Matt, who's a very, very good trainer and, People always ask, how did you used to bet Terry Darton? You know, he, he, he's you know, genius. He is a genius. Um, but they, they thought it was crooked. It, it was never, ever crooked. He didn't do it, cheat at all, Terry Darton. He was just an exceptionally good, good dog trainer. And his son, Matt, is now, he trains at Central Park and has open race dogs. Um, they train just down the road, actually. Um, but um, pe people thought it was crooked. It wasn't crooked at all. You just had to manage how much he'd get on certain dogs. So if there was a hot open race and he had a really good dog in it, I'd be willing to take it on. If he had a, a dog in an A9 off trials, then I don't want to stand it for 300 quid. You know, you had to pick your punches. I mean, one story I will tell quickly, Simon, is that uh, Terry Darton had a pup called My Buddy or Me Buddy. This is years ago. Um, it was about minus six on a Tuesday night at Reading, one of the early races, which would have been a Puppy 3, which is the equivalent of an A9, the lowest of the low. And Terry Darton had this pup called Me Buddy. I'd actually seen its trials because I was addicted to, I was very, very disciplined and good and put the time in then. And uh, in its trials, it had cramped up. It's got loads of pace, but it cramped up. So the end time it was doing, which is what they used to put them on the card, was slow. So it was in this basement grade. So we're all stood outside. I was cagey about pricing it up. But anyway, the market formed. People came out of the woodwork. By the finish, this dog, everyone in the world was backing it. It ended up five to two on. Um, and I, I didn't actually stand it. I, I, the last bet I laid was two grand at five to two on. I mean, it's already won, by the way. You know, this is not being clever. Um, eight weeks, it got beat. Something, it got completely left in the traps and got beat. Again, bookmaker, horrible. Icy's going to hate this. Um, it, it got beat. Eight weeks later, 
eight weeks later, the dog won the Peterborough Derby, which is like one of the massive competitions. This isn't graded race, this is a top open race. It was the fastest pup in the country, and it won about 30 races after that. We got it beat in an A9 against Snails. You know, I mean, Dart, if, if you ever do a betting people with Dartnell, he'll remember it. It's the best story ever. Okay, now just one more thing about the sort of clever punters. We will try and get Terry Dartnell, that'd be interesting. How many of all the massive crowds that were there how many punters do you think there would have been that would have worried you when you took a bet off them there, there were some very very shrewd trainers and most of them are still training now um gordon and richard baker um absolutely lethal when they had a bet a little trainer who used to be a pig farmer tim holton he used to train dogs called mont they all had the prefix monterey um and if, they, if there was ever a hundred pounds for any of them, you'd need an act of God to get them beat because they were, it wasn't like Greyhound Racing now, which is basically a conveyor belt of constant action. There's, you know, while we're talking, there's probably six Greyhound meetings on for the shops and for online. Um, dogs tended to get a run once a fortnight then. So they had two weeks to get them ready. And there were a lot of extremely clever people. But in those days, whereas those people are still around now, and their bets would show up immediately, and you'd do your absolute brains laying them at all, then there was enough general public money to ease the pain when they did have a touch. You, you'd be able to lay other dogs, for instance, rather than just the one. Whereas now, it, say you and I set up an online Greyhound-only bookmaking company, if you put up prices, you'd lay four dogs a meeting, and three of them would win, and they'd all crash. And when you got a race right, where you didn't make a rick, you wouldn't take a pound. That, that's how tough it is, you know. Totally different now. Okay, we're going to wrap up the greyhound section with this part. So briefly, you got chucked out of Oxford for being a little bit too uh, competitive, is that well, correct? I, think, I mean, uh, I'll have to choose my words carefully here. I, I went to Oxford, Reading was about to shut, and Oxford recruited me. It was totally different times again. Um, they wanted a, to boost the market and all the rest of it. And um, Oxford had bags meetings, which I'd never bet at before. I'd done... 15 years at Reading or so, never bet at a bags meeting. And this, I had seen bags racing. I'd seen Tony Morris betting four to one the field at Wimbledon in the very early days of Betfair. It was four to one, 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 four to one. They were all four to one. On Betfair in the early days, something was nine to four. The bottom one was five to two. That was 20. But Tony would bet four, four, four. I thought, I could be, this could be quite handy at Oxford, you know, if, if you're allowed to ignore Betfair and put prices up. So, Perhaps the less said about Oxford, the better. But Oxford is reopening this Christmas, so that's one good thing about dog racing. And you put your name down? Uh, I haven't. I, I, I'm tempted, I must admit. All right, Stephen, so we've, we've talked about the, uh, your adventures as a bookmaker, and obviously it's a, it's a pretty brutal sort of way of um, learning your trade. But would you say that your experience working as a bookmaker gives you a bit of an edge as a punter? I think it probably do, it does make you treat things as a business. I mean, I've not really ever been a recreational punter. I don't chase. I don't bet on everything. I mean, if I'm sitting in front of the football on a Sunday afternoon, I might back the drawer and try and trade it. But I've got no opinion or no clue on things like that. So um, I think it does help. I think you get a, a much more professional mindset of how to deal with a float, how to deal with your, your money, and also how to compartmentalise it. So... You know, if you want to have a bet all day on a Friday when Swindon and Hover on, that's fine. But if there's nothing on on a Saturday that interests you, there's no jump racing, then have a day off. So I do think it, it makes you treat your betting as a business, uh, which is a, is a really good habit to get into as a punter.
Okay, so we're talking a bit about discipline there, which leads me nicely on to my next question. Um, we've already said that if a betting expert, I've had a look at the site properly, actually, from my sins, the first time yesterday. And there's lots of other sort of tips to various different sports. And if you follow the best of them, they're, you know, they're all showing a nice, uh, a nice profit. But the other thing you notice about it, it also there's lots of links to bookmakers' yeah. sites, which I assume is you know, where they get yeah. their money. So if people just went on there and followed your two tips every day, if your past results are anything to go by, they're going to win yeah. over the period of time. But we're guessing that they don't. So what, you know, um, is it that few punters have got the discipline? I think that's it. I, th I think most people, and certainly I, I say I run a football team, and all of the kids who play for the football team, um, they're in their 20s, um, will have all had an experience of betting um, and mainly it will have been a negative one that they'll have had a substantial loss early on. And a lot of them don't bet at all now as a result. Or if they do, they'll have an accumulator on a Saturday or they like going to the races or the dogs once or twice a year and they'll take 50 quid. And if they lose 50 quid, that's it. Most punters do see it as a sort of recreational pursuit on a Saturday at a stag do with their mates. I don't think many young people go and stand in a betting shop anymore I think that's probably finished, but online, on their phones, people haven't got the discipline. So what will happen is, you know, let's say someone like Mark Holder, when I was younger um, and I was at um, university, I used to follow Mark Holder, exceptionally good judge, and you could get on. And if you just bet Mark Holder's tips, um, you'd make really good profits if you were disciplined. But of course, you know, when you're young, you think you know better and all the rest of it. You want, you want to back your own tips or go racing or have six bets at Cheltenham or... So most punters are not disciplined and that's why big firms like 365, Skybet make an awful lot of money off recreational punters because while they might follow a tipster who's warm or, or not, as the case may be, they'll still have a lot of other bets. That If there's a live match on Friday night, they'll have a bet on that. People do it because they're... Uh, got a sort of action junkie mentality rather than treating it as a business. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be sneering about people like that. The, the whole industry relies on people like that losing money or betting money on things they enjoy. And it, if it's small stakes, it's absolutely fine. Not causing any harm. It's, it's no different to somebody having a drink or smoking or, or going to the theatre, is it? It's, uh, if you're getting pleasure out of it, it it's fine. But uh, if you're trying to earn your living from it, um, having discipline and specialising in certain areas is, is, is the secret to, to at least not losing money and maybe making money. Okay, I'm interested there that you said you might, if you're watching the football, you might sit there and uh, bet the draw and try and trade out of it. Is that after you've done a bit of study and looked at these no, two teams? No, I mean, that's... That so there's a bit of, a, there's a yeah, bit of an inner, I mean, an inner all, recreational Yes, there, I guess there, there is in all of us that, you know, if I'm going to have to watch the football, if, if I'm down the pub with mates and stuff... Um, you know, I'll have a hundred quid on the draw and try and lay less. I mean, that, that's that's so there is that in everyone. Nobody is perfect. I mean, I'd like to think that I wouldn't lose too much on things that I don't know anything about because I'm not having thousands on, and it's not. Um, but I think I think it'd be very. Um, you've got to be extremely diligent and and dedicated not to, from time to time, um, snap out of the sort of stranglehold of 
of being really disciplined, yeah. And is, is everything on spreadsheets and do you analyze no, I, your bets? No, um, I've got my bank account and I can see what goes in and out of Betfair. I don't spend hours pouring over. I do spend a lot of time pricing things up and looking at form and watching back videos and all the rest of it. But I, and I used to make copious notes, as I said before, I used to, before computers, I, I had huge books of notes of form cards of greyhounds and all the rest of it, but it's all online now. I've got a database for National Hunt Racing where my notes go on if I think something's jumped left or pulled hard or didn't go on the ground or blah, blah, blah. It's all on my database, so I can look at that each morning when I'm looking at the afternoon's racing. Um, but I don't have anything on paper. And I used to buy a racing, we used to buy Race Sporting Life Racing Post, Simon. I used to buy that religiously, I used to get it delivered and pour over it and keep back copies of it piled up in my office upstairs. But a few years ago, I realized it's pointless. I don't ever look at them again. You know, you're just, it's habit of writing things down. Um, so everything's online now, everything's on a database, basically. Well, looking back at my, my personal thing, I mean, I used to lose, I used to work at the slaughterhouse and get paid 70 quid every week on a Friday afternoon and lose a lot, but apart I know- from my mum's rent. But looking back on it, it was horrific because I had no idea about staking. Yeah. So I used to go in and have a fiver on, if it won, I'd probably have a tenner on until I yeah. lost it all. And the manager knew we were going to lose our money every week, yeah. but yeah. it did eventually teach you a lesson. But what would your, and, and my point about this is the staking, I yeah. mean, now I've got a ridiculously big bank in the bigger scheme of things, not big, but, you know, yeah. for small stakes. Yeah. So how much would you recommend a punter would have? If they're going to start betting in 50s, how much should they have as a tank? Well, I think you, you probably need five or 10,000 probably, don't you? Because then the key is to stay in second gear, not get hotted up, not get excited. I mean, you're saying about working in the slaughterhouse. One of my pals, Jeff Moore, who's an exceptionally good greyhound judge, but he still works... Um, in, in a factory which he hates um, and he's only just discovering punting discipline relatively recently he's had years of being a very good judge but being a very bad punter and there's a there's plenty of people who are exceptionally good judges but don't make it paid punting I mean funnily enough I think there's quite a lot of people like that who, who are in the media to be honest with you who talk a fantastic game and and know the form book inside out and are very very shrewd people, but they probably don't win punting. That, that's the honest truth. That, that's my experience when I worked on the racing SIS and the Racing Channel back in the day. There was a huge cabal of commentators in there who all know the form book, all knew everything about racing, but they'd all troop over to Labbrook's betting shop and have a you know they weren't winning punters. And there's a lot of that about it. It's very hard to. Um, stay disciplined, stay focused, keep doing the right things. Uh, I think staying in second gear and not getting hotted up is the best possible advice. Going on tilt, as they used to call Going it. Going on tilt, exactly, the, uh, yeah. We've all done it, we've all done it. Now, you've you mentioned the media there. You've enjoyed the limelight a bit, working with SIS and Racing Channel and, and Matchbook doing um, yeah. doing podcasts. Is a career in front of the camera still? We're doing it now, aren't you? Some of oh, you still no, quite I fancy. I, I, re- I, I mean, I, must, I like to think that I'm not... Uh, I'm not really interested in publishing. I'd far sooner get it quietly and, and not, not boom. I know I've finally cracked to come on this with you and it's a pleasure to. It's enjoyable, but I'd sooner be under the radar. I think you set yourself up for a fall a bit. As soon as you start I aming or all the rest of it, you can sort of know that you're going to have about three losing months and the, the lights will be flickering, don't you? I, I'm, I'm, I'd much sooner be sort of have humility and not uh, be in front of the camera. But that being said, I do a weekly YouTube thing with Shane uh, Jump and Ed um, called Jump To It for IrishRacing.com. And I absolutely love doing that because it gets your brain flowing. As this is now, the, you know, the more we go on, the more things I think of. But um, by talking to other people and 
making sure you're aware of what's going on in racing, the news stories, what's run well, what's happening in betting. You do keep your brain active. I, I think sometimes as a professional punter, it certainly happened to me uh, years ago, before, you know, you can become quite antisocial. You're completely wrapped up in sort of dog racing. And if you've got a family and I've got, we've got a young son, well, he's not young anymore, he's gone to university the other day, but um, you, you need a, something to break your focus, to get out of that sort of shell of sitting. That being said, I do spend most days hunkering in my office till five o'clock in the attic. You know. Now you've been successful for a long time, so, um, but do you think betting successfully is something that can be sustained indefinitely? I, I do wonder where betting's going. Um, we touched on it earlier about these affordability checks um, that Betfair in particular, but other companies, Skybet, my friend says, are, are introducing it as well. Um, that's going to make life extremely difficult. I mean, my experience with Betfair is they're getting to the point now where they're saying to you, how much do you earn every month? Well, let's say it's £4,000. That gives you, by their sort of formula, a maximum loss limit of £1,000 a month. Well, that's going to iron out everybody because most people haven't got an income of £4,000 a month um, or ten. You know, say you had an income of £10,000 a month, presumably the most you can lose gambling is something like 2500 I think it's a quarter is what they're working on. Well, the exchange is going to die, isn't it? Because nobody will be able to have a bet. You can't, you can't have two losing days. I mean... So that is amazing. I do, I mean, I do, I have started to think more recently, I'm nearly 50, um, what am I going to do if there isn't betting? And that, you, you sort of sound quite diseased when you say that, but I, I find when I wake up early every morning, um, the, the mental challenge of pricing things up and looking for angles and trying to find a winner or trying to lay a loser, I find that quite a good motivation. If I was waking up at five every morning thinking, well, I can't have a bet, that's a complete game changer, isn't it? For a lot, of, for all of us, I'm sure anyone watching this uh, podcast would be thinking, you know, what if I can't ever bet? You know, if, if that outlet's gone, and it does feel like we are heading in that direction a bit. Okay, the last few things are just advice for people. So, what's the most important lesson you've learned over the years about betting? I would I would say that you never want to lose, lose more than you can comfortably afford to. As you get older, I think when I was younger, I was, you know, throttled back, playing very, very big, certainly in relation to what I had. And it's too volatile to sustain when you're married, you've got children, a family. Um, and the other thing I'd, I'd say, I mean, I've been married for 22 years, not that that's essential for punting. I think it's quite good to have a settled family life, you know, we've stayed in the same house for 20 years. I think that's a big, big help to come home. And my, my wife's um, long-suffering, obviously, but, you know, she's been through all the ups and downs along the way. And I think it's good to have somewhere um, that you can come back to and you're relaxed and calm away from the betting world. I mean, certainly when I used to come in from the dogs, huge swings relative to, you know, thousands of pounds relative to what I had in the world. And, you know, I used to you'd toss and turn at night, not be able to sleep. You'd be thinking about what you'd done wrong. And I think it's important to try and separate betting from your, your, your normal life, really. And the most expensive, painful lesson that you learned? Well, I mean, I think you, you, you mustn't really bet on credit yourself or lay people credit bets. I mean, I think Ben, um, Star Sports Ben, has done brilliantly well. He's built Star Sports up from nothing originally 
from people betting on credit. And I'm full of admiration for that because my experience at the dogs, admittedly, over 10 years ago now, um, it's not a good idea. Um, if, if one person along the chain betting on credit disappears, it knocks up, has a terrible knock-on effect down the line. It's very hard to recover from, so you're better off playing cash for cash. I remember when I started at the Dogs, one of the bookmakers had a sign-up, no credit, or, or do not ask for credit because refusal often offends, and I think that's probably very good advice. And finally, the best advice. So somebody watching this, you know, like they've watched the other ones, they're trying to improve their own game. What yeah. would be the one thing that they should take away from this from well, you? I think you need to find an area where you know all of the reasons why things are priced in a certain way. Whether it's six greyhounds or hurdlers or two-year-olds only on the flat, find an area where you can deal with all the bits that are involved in it and form a really good understanding of how the markets are formed. Okay, brilliant. Well, Stephen Harris, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.